When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Eliza Minot's newest novel, In the Orchard, lives with Maisie Moore, her husband Neil, and their children for a single day. Maisie has just given birth to Esme, and as her family prepares for a trip to the orchard to pick apples and buy a pumpkin, she considers what her children her motherhood, her attachment to the natural world, and her love for those she knows and those she doesn't, all means to the infinite complexity of life. Punctuated by scenes of everyday living in all of its ordinary beauty and ugliness, In the Orchard brings a poetic, wandering mind to questions of how and why we make families and what essential, special, sometimes terrible role a mother plays in that gathering. Written in luxurious prose that makes room for the koan-like wisdom of children and the mundanity of our everyday failings as people and parents, In the Orchard dazzles as a chorus for the living and an homage for the ways in which we keep those we've lost alive when we pause to consider the connections between our brief lives and the vast expanse of all the lives that breathe around us. Eliza Minot is the author of the critically acclaimed novels The Tiny One and The Brambles, published by Knopf Vintage. Her books have been named to various lists, including the New York Times Notable, BookSense 76, Nancy Pearls, and Oprah's Top 10 Summer Picks. She went to Barnard College and received her MFA from Rutgers Newark, where she was a presidential fellow. She has taught at Rutgers Newark, Barnard College, and NYU. 
She grew up the youngest of seven children in Manchester-by-the-Sea, Massachusetts. She lives in Maplewood, New Jersey, with her family. Welcome to the show, Eliza. Thank you, Chris. That was that was just lovely, especially about I, I want to read my own book. I love <laughs> I love hearing it from someone as thoughtful as you described. That was great. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for being here. And I want to jump straight into the the form of In the Orchard, uh, In the Orchard, which takes place over the course of a single day. I wonder what was appealing about that constraining chronological form and what were the surprises of work within that constraint? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I'm thinking of two things at once, but I guess first I will say that when I started out writing this book, it initially was not at all going to be a day. It was not even focusing on a young mom. It was called American Standard. It was going to be about the housing crisis, kind of mm. a family or two, like sibling families, you know, with little kids. Um, but I want to read that one as well. Well, yeah, maybe one day there will be some iteration of that. But the more I wrote, I hadn't written a lot, but maybe sort of 70, 80 pages in, um, I began to write about a newborn and a mom worried about the money, which definitely trickles into in the orchard, obviously, the, the newborn stuff, but also the financial worries. Um, I just found myself kind of going there. And the more I wrote, the more I thought, you know, I wish I had read more books about newborn, not newborn babies, but just mothers in the weird, weird state of newborn time, which is just like no other time in life. Um, and I've certainly read about wonderfully about motherhood and, you know, raising children and domestic stuff that's been elevated to literature, or very poetic or I wanted to just slow down and really focus on it. And I guess, you know, whether it's a, a major fault in terms of being a writer or just for now anyway, I'm not so drawn to plot. I love reading plot. I do, of course. Mm -hmm. I love plot. But I'm much more kind of drawn to how people think or how they're navigating their thoughts and mm -hmm. even their me memories and their daily moments and um you know, how they're how they're kind of dealing in their life moment to moment. So in one way, I feel like I can go down a wormhole, rabbit hole, and really I could I could have focused on 10 minutes. I mean, that's crazy and sounds like such a snore, but do you know what I mean? Like it, no, absolutely. so much richness in sort of every moment once you start to explore it. And um doesn't that, that was... Nicholson Baker have that book that's just about the guy descending the the stairs? Yeah. I mean, there's so with flashbacks and I mean, in literature, there's so much you can do. And I guess in a movie, too, and filmically or, you know, but so many things make one think of so many other things. And who mm -hmm. are we if not our memories and our, you know, what we're thinking about all the time? Yeah, and we and we contain you know multitudes, and so the the chronology of a day in Maisie's mind becomes lifetimes, not only hers, but but the lifetimes of the natural world, and you know thinking about the past of her of her lineage, her her grandmother and her mother, and so it it of course doesn't feel like a day; it feels like um, a lifetime. Yeah. There also, the other part that I was thinking of when you first asked the question was my first book 
actually is over the course of the day. It is kind of based on my own life. I'm the youngest of seven, like you said in the intro, and my mother died totally suddenly in an accident when I was seven. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time, so it's not shocking to me, but sometimes people are like, oh my God. But so we were, me, I was the youngest, I was seven, and the oldest was 21. So we were all very young and it was, you know, talk about a life altering, disastrous moment. Yeah. Um, my first book was not so much me, but, you know, based on my experience, it's a girl who's eight years old who just has at the finds out her mother's dead. And so the entire book is pretty much her remembering her mom. And I, you know, now that I'm in my early 50s, and this is my third book, even though it's hard to even feel like a writer since it was such a long spread between my second and third, but that's okay. It's a whole nother topic. Um, I write a lot of the time, a lot of my sort of impulse and sort of compulsivity to write at all is to kind of you know, I was listening to the Rachel Incident, Caroline O'Donohue, and I was thinking, oh, I'm going to be talking to Chris. So I was listening to your most recent interview. Mm. And she had mentioned very much of how I feel. I was sort of, I can't even remember how she phrased it, but just the the kind of how writing is is sort of not just contextualizing memories, but, you know, nailing down what one is thinking and how one feels about the things that have happened. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of the reason why I write, to sort of keep things from getting lost to myself and to the world in general. Hmm. I love um, that. So now I'm kind of spinning out of control. But the one day as I was writing way back when it was sort of American Standard and I was like, you know, I, I did raise four children. Am I Maisie? I'm not. But I there were definitely aspects of that total mind crazy time of being with little kids that I did not want to forget. So that was a lot of the impulse of sort of leaning towards, I keep saying leaning into like that, you know, mm -hmm. the corporate book, but oh, no, not the yacht actually, lady. <laughs> yeah, like the other way around, I'm like, I'm leaning in to lean out away from the corporate desk. But <laughs> I sort of wanted to focus on things that I felt were so tremendously major in terms of being human and being alive and that deserves to be sort of elevated and to have this kind of, I don't mean scrutiny, but just attention paid to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was where it sort of went into a day. And it, it isn't even really a day. I mean, they don't quite get to yeah not quite to the lunch i don't know you know maybe they did but <laughs> i and you're in in dealing with those moments you really sort of i think relish Maisie's thinking of the contradictory nature of motherhood on the one hand she sees maternality as as a link between generations of women and their children between humans and the natural world and on the other hand you know, she says directly, it's some combination of extended breadth versus the claustrophobia of being limited and that those things are constantly coexisting for her. This the limiting nature of being 
kind of stuck, um, I, you know, it, 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 for a long point in the beginning of the novel, she's breastfeeding Esme and, um, you know, she can't really move. And, uh, but also this extraordinary, almost kind of spiritual breadth. And I wonder if you'd speak to the, those contradictions. Yeah, that um, those contradictions are exactly what I felt most drawn to writing about, just because in the big picture, I feel like that's, you know, it's this is certainly about a mother, a young mom, and we're following it's but we're, it's more in my mind, it's like, what we all contend with in life. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We're all kind of constrained to ourselves, but we also are free. But we're also, it's just being a young mother myself, even personally, I really felt like it underlined all the biggest kind of mysteries and contradictions and um, wonder and danger of everyone being alive. And we've all been through it. Like, everybody's been raised by somebody, you know, a child. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole nother, I mean, I'm not now I'm veering away from your question, which I'll get to in a second, but I'm just, otherwise I think I'm going to forget this. Just the fact that raising kids and sort of, it's not like, you know, the entire pillar of civilization, but in a way it kind of is right? It's like, how <laughs> you... It. Civilization like how... doesn't last very long without... No. And if everyone was ill-treated as kids or, you know, didn't get any love as kids, it's like, it's sort of where all the kernels of all the important stuff start and how we t treat each other as, you know, big human beings. Um, so even that, that contradiction of sort of this kind of general attitude from society that's kind of not vilifying moms, but it's like, oh, you know, the harried mother and the pacifiers and diapers and sort of making them almost like infants themselves. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then on the flip side, it's like there's nothing sort of more transcendent. I can't, I mean, I've never died, obviously, myself, but I've fallen in love. I'm and glad I'm to fairly hear that. Close. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, when someone, won, when someone I've loved does die, that altering of reality is sort of the closest thing to having a child. I don't know. It just it's that sharp relief of like reminding you we're alive. And this goes back to to my own personal experience, I guess, of losing my mom, Yeah. where it's like anything can happen. You know, this is it's it's touch and go. It's all a contradiction, I guess. It's like we're safe, but we're not safe. It's beautiful, but it's terrifying. It's, mm. you know, it really um, all of that comes to quite a little pinpoint when you are caring for a newborn. I, it, Maisie, too, has lost her, her mother at a very young age. And I wonder whether similarly that was an attempt to, uh, to I guess, place some of your memories, your sensations, your, your understandings of your, your mother within a fictional world as a way of preserving her and the way that you have yourself and perhaps through Maisie dealt with that sort of long, long lifetime grief. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely, it's, it's what I know. And it is, I mean, even in my second book, The Brambles, the mother is dead in that too. I might be a, a dead mother always in the books, Chris. Mm. I don't know. Oh, but well. it's um it's particularly about a new mom, it seemed um 
And she's not a brand new mom. She's got three older kids. It's not like she's never done this before, but it's still, it's just as kind of mind bending every time, if not maybe even more so, you know, it's like, again, another one. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's happened. I did it. You know, it's uh, to not have a mother around, I guess, just made for a lot more room to think about a mother rather than, you know, have an interaction with a mother who's alive in this kind of, you know, not suspended time, but it's like, it's really about 12 hours. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Another book I could have maybe written like the angry mom afternoon or, you know, the mother who's fed up for the yeah. last eight hours of the day. That would be a different story. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but this is sort of the disoriented morning midnight feeding to early afternoon surreal day at an orchard. Hmm. So you've already referenced the economic struggles that Maisie and, and Neil are experiencing, and they're doing very sort of, for me, existentially terrifying things like drawing on this line of credit from their mortgage to pay for credit card debts and 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 deal with basic household needs. And it just it like cues all these horrible fears I have about yeah. the, about finances <laughs> and uh, you and the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah. all <laughs> of us, all of us, <laughs> nearly um, every one of their expenses carries anxiety and, and worry you know, she's even thinking about the pumpkin as like, you know, right. how much is that yeah. going to cost? And I, I, I wonder what you wanted to do with, you know, the economic precarity specific to Maisie and Neil, but also with, you know, the last however many years the this country and the world has been in seeming always on the precipice, if not in fast decline into economic anxiety. Yeah, well, isn't it funny that, I mean, when I began this and when I actually initially sold it to my editor, it was right after the housing crisis. And that was mm -hmm. what I was focusing on. And as we can, like you just said, finances, the issues don't really go away. You know, it's like a, it's an ongoing um, worry for everybody, particularly young families, but I think everybody. Um, all of that, though, the more I wrote about the mom stuff and also not working and other mothers talking about whether they're working or not and sort of this just the kind of background feeling of what is value hmm. and what how do we quantify that value and sort of, you know, it's not anything I can answer or, you know, pinpoint directly, but just kind of the relationship between just sort of capitalism and patriarchy and this wonder of having a family and being a mother. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And she, and and in, in these moments when she is feeding Esme, she feels able to kind of project herself into kind of an almost utopian out of space and time place. And then something will happen and she gets jarred back into, you know, the realities of, of the capitalist world in which you're never not allowed to be in anxiety about capital. It's sort of a so and I mean, it's a it's such a, again, contradiction that's very or contradiction maybe isn't even the right word, but definitely has that as paradox all ripped like wrapped up in there. But even as a woman, it's almost like I'm going to stick it to the man by never working for the man and just nursing my baby. You know, <laughs> but is that really sticking it to the man? Not really, but it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's certainly leaning away from the is it was it Cheryl Strandberg, you know, leaning away? Oh, yes, from the Cheryl Strandberg. Yeah, Strandberg. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, it's like leaning out. And even writing the book, I thought, you know, I not could a man have written this? I didn't. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write what only I can write. But there was in my mind, and I like even physically, like the feelings of nursing or contractions or things that just I haven't read a lot in literature. Yeah, that no. I wanted to just kind of. Not just to get it written down and added to the sort of, you know, however we say that word mm -hmm. um, of that kind of writing and then move on to my next project. But I just needed to, you know, I feel like an embedded journalist in my own life that I need to just report back. The novel moves with a, a, a natural rhythm between dialogue and present action and Maisie's meditative thinking process. The latter segments, the latter segments are striking and beautiful. And I would love for you to read an example passage for us. Um, would you be willing to do that? Sure. I'd love to. Um, Maisie is the name of the mom and um, the new mother, Maisie Moore. And she is nursing her baby in the middle of the night, but going in and out, as we discussed, of different memories, flashbacks, you know, thinking of things just a couple of days prior to and thinking back to when her mother died. You know, there's she's all over the place. But right now she is thinking of her um, local community, just kind of um, being at a small soccer, like not toddler, but, you know, like preschool age ish soccer practice. Mm -hmm. So she's in suburbia, sort of near a city. I guess that's all we really know. Maisie looked up and down the sidelines. There were a few babysitters, a couple of dads, but mostly it was moms, all of whom had managed to get up again, like every day, and whether they liked it or not, dress not only themselves, but also whatever small human beings they were in charge of, 
finding the socks, finding the shoes, getting lunch packed for whatever older kids were heading off to school. Some picky eaters with their lunches of rolled up pieces of cheese and de-shelled pistachios. Some not so picky, happy with pre-bought snack bags. Some of the mothers, surely, were up throughout the night, tending to an infant, nursing, feeding, changing, responding to every single thing. Others were up throughout the night arguing with their partners in the confines of their bedroom, exchanging nasty repartees or out-and-out name-calling over money, or their household's division of labor, or arguing about sex, jealousies, or extended family dynamics. Still others were more than likely sitting up in the bathroom with the toddler or tween who was vomiting into a, the bathtub or coughing a croupy cough while the shower fogged up the room. Or they were sleeping in a kid's bed because the kid woke from a bad dream. Others surely slept solidly after making love, holding each other. Most of these men and women had even worked already today, sitting down at their laptops or shouting orders into telephones before the sun was up. Many of them were gone into their workday, near or far, but not here. Yet some of them had made it. Was it such a priority to this little kid soccer practice at this classic American park, even though the kids themselves might have been dragged along? They had all made it here, this practice, and were each looking out over the autumnal suburban scene with their various thoughts in their heads. Maisie thought of all of them, looking here and there, her mind wandered, slack with pregnancy, thinking of the lives of these parental figures, standing sentry like cut boxwoods, watching over their charges. Where had they all lived up to this very moment? Where were they at 25 years old when it was mid-autumn? At 15? 10? Who were their parents? Was this better than before? Was it worse? Were they parenting as their parents had, or were they avoiding the way their parents had parented? Who were all these people she knew and yet did not know? Thank you so much. Behind the facades of all these mostly women who've ended up at this TOTS soccer game are all these imagined complex struggles that are so often unspoken outside the bounds of homes. It's clear that Maisie wants to understand those struggles as fundamental to uh, existences other than her own in a way that connects her to this community and, and mostly a community of women. And I'm very interested in the way that you wanted to uh, have Maisie's imagination kind of reach out almost the way a novel does to get inside the interiority of someone, do that thing that we can't do as humans. We can't know the interior and can't know the life behind the facade. And so I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, that is such a cool idea, like novels. It really is. That is why I love novels. <laughs> Me too. Me too. You know, it's like, um, they keep saying mother, mother, mother. It's like, yes, this book is all about mother, but it's also, you know, I know I keep saying this too. It's just about the consciousness and thinking and navigating life. And like you say, imagining what is happening elsewhere and even by doing that, making sense of things for yourself, which is like what we do when we're reading. The weird thing, again, this other contradiction, I think about being a mother or a young person, you know, raising a person is that you have these thoughts, 
but often you don't. It's such an insular experience being a parent, especially of a small person, that there are things that like in the book when there's conversations with other young parents and, you know, older parents and there's sort of information exchange. But the weirdness, it's not unlike grief. I make it sound so depressing, but I mean grief in a good way. Like the mm. the, the the mysterious side of it is just so hard to hard to get one's head around anyway, let alone talk about with other people. You know what I mean? Yeah, And within that, there's so much contradiction of frustration and resentment and anger and all the sort of ugly stuff of not ugly, but challenging, like the, the difficult side that I think often that is what gets most talked about because the intimacy is so strangely unique to oneself that it's just really hard to even express. So yeah. that's kind of a long way around of thinking. I think Maisie thinks about these people, but doesn't really know them that well, mm -hmm. which happens when you're preoccupied with a small persons. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes. absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> it's like you can think about them and think, wow. You know, I've known you for five years and I know your name, but I don't think I know if you even have a sibling or, mm -hmm. you know, just basics. That's so true. I, if, if we think of Maisie's mantra about the world, it might, might be summed up by a quote from the novel that there's mystery in every nook and cranny and curve of life. At one point, she considers how so many humans are, in fact, fallow fields, quote, with their potential growth that might prick green through the surface like bristles of grass that never get fostered. Although she doesn't say this directly, it struck me that this might be an enormous burden of expectation on Maisie's shoulders, that she must hoe the fallow field of her children's potential, lest it all go to waste. Did you imagine this as a kind of onus on Maisie and, and motherhood? And also, I, I want to hear you talk more about this fascinating idea that we are all filled with potential, but we are fallow fields that may or may not come to fruition. I, again, another contradiction, Chris, we could keep a, ta a, like a tally of uh, that that's kind of push-pull of the potential and expectations versus fostering what could be helped to be growed, grown or whatever the word, however we say it. See, this is why I'm a writer. I can write things down once I think about them better than speak them. <laughs> 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 when if I, I mean, now I'm thinking just personally, not as Maisie, but I'm thinking sure, of my yeah. own kids and how to foster, you know, there's what you think that they seem to be heading or, you know, what their strengths are. Right. Yeah. That's one thing. And you think, well, I've known you. I know you better than you know yourself. You know, I've known you since the moment you, but they they are obviously their own people and find their strengths just as we all do, you know? So what am I pointing out? I guess that onus is, I think, unavoidable as a parent, like in one way, feeling like, mm -hmm. how do I help or how do I, how do I enable everything to kind of grow the best it can grow? 
you know, yeah. like a tree, like the flowers, mm -hmm. yeah. everything. But you also don't want to overwater it and you don't want to. Now we are getting into sort of allegories that are in the book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Wanna, yeah. The orchard is an extraordinary yeah. allegory for all right. of you this. You don't want to bury it. You don't want to drown it. You don't want to kill it by, you know, being too fussy and you want to let it grow wild. But if you grow too wild, you can't, you know, like an orchard really is. It's It's like a wild place that's highly cultivated, you know. Mm like some children, I guess. Yes. I hope I haven't cultivated my children that much, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're within the strictures of of this world, for sure. Yeah. There uh, is this wonderful tension between Maisie's just luxurious language of an almost poet philosopher in her internal mind and the often hilarious, what I think of as like the Greek chorus of her children who speak in these aphorisms, often as though a composite being saying things like, are we scared? Um, and, uh, and, and I wonder how you played with that tension in the language, what it was like moving back as a writer, back and forth between, you know, really poetic language and then the 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 wonderful and philosophical, but often kind of um, pared down way of thinking of the world of children. You know, it it very much, I mean, as you, are we scared? Yeah, um, I'm just thinking that impulse of sort of wanting to remember things and writing them down. I certainly, there was a time when I remember writing things down that my kids, my own kids had said. I don't know where I ever put them. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they it wasn't a, a list that was kept straight and that I even know. You know, occasionally I may find something like a little piece of paper that someone I that one of them said or something. This, I mean, in this book, it wasn't so much trying to remember things that I heard my own kids say, though it was often imagining what I could imagine one of them saying. And with the poetry thrown in, I mean, kids do, they speak more poetic than people, for yeah, sure. Yeah. It's like they don't, you know, it's almost like, it's like raw poetry. They just don't even know how to talk, but they know how to express <laughs> themselves. <laughs> you know, even when they can't talk yet and they're trying to imitate words, you know what I mean? Like saying strawberry without saying strawberry. It sounds so poetic. It's like, a, you know what they're saying without mm -hmm. even saying it. That's yeah, not and so much answering your question, but it's sort of the, it's, I just, I do get, I get a real kick out of kids. And <laughs> they speak a wisdom that they have not earned in experience. And sometimes they don't get listened to, or they don't get treated seriously. And one of the things I liked about uh, Maisie is, is that she's always treating them seriously. Yes, that's true. They do. They, they say those things and you're like, wow. Yeah, I, I think something that is missing from a lot of just regular sort of like parenting culture, but also literature where children, especially sort of in those kind of like early verbal phases are just kind of diversionary and not actual um, interesting characters or or parts of the novel. Yeah. And and it seems like you wanted to you wanted to amend that. <laughs> Definitely. And I, I thank you for even pointing it out. It definitely it's part of the, you know, not just sort of drawing attention to this, you know, the newborns and moms with the newborns, but just the. Yeah, the richness, just a lot of sort of elevation of poetry for real that I think kids deserve.
Yeah, agree. And I mean, it's it. I, no, I'm not saying, oh, I did a great job. I thank you so much for you know saying that it, their language was poetic. But it is hard. There's nothing. I mean, I don't mean nothing worse. There's a lot of things worse to read, but often there is kind of a you know a kind of real condescension, not just to moms but to kids in mm -hmm. literature. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and the kids, even when it's trying to come off as really authentic, it falls pretty flat. Mm -hmm. Before I let you go, <laughs> I'd love to know if you are reading anything that you might be willing to recommend to the audience. I just listened to things, but that's not the same. I mean, what? Well, I, I think actually, it is. I, I think it is. Okay. Well, I listened probably like like a lot of the country to both Tom Lake, which Meryl Streep read, and Demon Copperhead. People are raving about this. <laughs> well, it is fun because it's like, it sounds like, you know, Meryl's in a movie or, you know what I mean? And you mm -hmm. know her voice so well. Um, I listened to Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead too, who I don't know who read that, but he was great at it. I'm thinking though, right now, these are both nonfiction, but when I was writing this book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, it does come up in the book. Mm -hmm. Like it's, they kind of, there's a reference to it or a little conversation around it. But I had that book sort of near me a lot as I did also Bell Hooks, All About Love. Just which, since- Which was a title I didn't know of, of Bell Hooks's. Yeah. They were, both of those, I don't know, there's just something about not just kindness, but just sort of the vibe of, you know, figuring out how to live best. You know, I don't know. It's like a- very, a lot of humanness. So those were near me, nearby when I was writing in the orchard. An Irish writer named, now I'm going to totally butcher her name. It's Doreen Nigriafa, Ghost in the Throat. Oh, yes. I've seen this all over the place. Yeah, that was, that is cool. She's a poet and she writes, it's very poetic. And then it's also very a slight, newer, right? It's like yeah. man, not even a hundred pages or. A little longer, but yeah, it's not longer. a big, okay. huge book. Yeah. And I guess, you know, Rachel Cusk, I was reading sort of when I was writing this one of, I don't know, just the outline series of hers did kind Wait. of make me think, oh, I can write sort of just one woman. You know what I mean? Like point of view, even though this isn't in first person, but in the orchard was very sort of close first person. Let's put it that way. If if we're talking sheer pound for pound influence of writers, Rachel yes. Cusk has got to be up there at the very, very top. The number of writers that point to her for every manner of inspiration is, is extraordinary. Yeah, I'll say Jenny Awful, too, and probably people oh, say that, too. Another wonderful, yeah, right. <laughs> another wonderful writer. Speculation, but that's a great one with a little baby, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, oh, she thinks about, well, she thinks about marriage in, in uh, the previous book and then um, thinks about, you know, young motherhood, too. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, Cusk and, and Awful and and Barbara Kingsolver, that Demon Copperfield, I've been, I've had it by my bedside, but it's so hard for me to read anything um, that I'm not conducting an interview for, because that's where my time is spent. And uh, I just keep meaning to to try and fit it in because it I sounds I truly, wonderful. both that and Tom Lake, I'm, not that I don't think I would have read them, but if they were on my bedside table, I'm not sure if I, I mean, I listened to them and it was, it was great. I'll have to do that. I know. Let's just kind of, you know. You take it in. I had one thing with yeah. Merrill, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
These are great recommendations, and I know that my listeners will be also really excited to go out and pick up In the Orchard by Eliza Minot. I really loved reading this, and I felt connected in a way to kind of young motherhood and and also just the way in which we make lines of connection between ourselves and our families to the world going on around us, which often seems abstract, but this book makes very visceral and real. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it, Eliza. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for having me. I really, really, really appreciate it and enjoyed it. Well, it, the pleasure was all mine. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Eliza Minot for coming on the show to talk about her newest novel, In the Orchard, out now with Knopf. You can find links to purchase In the Orchard and all of Eliza's recommended books and audiobooks at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>